Amy Meinzer and her new Asteroid Hunting Space Telescope, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. The announcement from NASA came in June. After years of advocacy, planning, proposals, and disappointment, the agency gave the green light to what is now known as NEO-Surveyor. This relatively small infrared telescope will help us discover the thousands of big space rocks that threaten our home world. Amy will be here to tell us about the project she leads. Later, we'll hear again from the Planetary Society's chief scientist. Bruce Betts will bring us another space trivia contest right after a scan of the current night sky and a random space fact. Happy 52nd Lunar Landing Anniversary, everyone! I'm recording this week's show on July 20th, and there's now yet another reason to revere that date. Hours ago, Jeff Bezos and three companions climbed aboard a capsule that sat atop one of Blue Origin's New Shepard rockets. Minutes later, that rocket carried them above the Kármán line. The black of space was above, the blue of Earth below. After four minutes of zero-G fun, the new space travelers experienced as much as five Gs of deceleration before setting down in the Texas desert at a gentle one mile an hour. 82-year-old Wally Funk nearly stole the show at the post-flight news conference. Wally was one of the Mercury 13, the group of women who trained as hard or harder than the famed Mercury 7. They were declared fully qualified for spaceflight and then saw their dreams crushed. Here's what Wally had to say after finally making it into space nearly 60 years later. Listen for the kiss on the cheek she shares with Jeff Bezos. I can't tell you. I had such a good instructor. He took us through everything that we were going to do. So when I went up this morning, the noise wasn't quite as bad. And we went right on up, and I saw darkness. I thought I was going to see the world, but we weren't quite high enough. And I felt great. I felt like I was just laying down. I was just laying down, and I was going into space. And I want to thank you, sweetheart, because you made it possible for me. I've been waiting a long time to finally get it up there, and I've done a lot of astronaut training through the world, Russia, America, and I could always beat the guys on what they were doing because I was always stronger and I've always done everything on my own. And I didn't do dolls. I did outside stuff. And I, and I flew airplanes. I had 19,000 some hours. I loved it. And I loved being here with all of you, your family, uh, the, f- the four of us. It, we had a great time. It was, it was wonderful. True. I want to go again fast. <laughs> Blue Origin plans two more flights this year. As we did last week for Virgin Galactic, we offer our congratulations. There's more July 20th fun in the July 16 edition of The Downlink. We heard with great relief since our newsletter was issued that the Hubble Space Telescope has successfully transferred operations to a second computer, just as we heard it would from James Webb Space Telescope Project Manager Bill Oakes in the July 7 Planetary Radio. It's good to know our best eye on the universe is back in action. 
The U.S. House of Representatives has proposed a $25 billion budget for NASA in fiscal year 2022. That's a bit more than the Biden administration requested, and it includes money for Amy Meinzer's Neosurveyor. Amy is a professor in the Lunar and Planetary Lab at the University of Arizona. The U of A tempted her away from NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab about two years ago. She remains the principal investigator for the NEOWISE mission, an aging space telescope that was repurposed in 2013 for near-Earth object hunting. That was after the end of its first life as the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, or WISE. As you'll hear, NASA has given NEOWISE a two-year extension of its important work, but Amy has also spent years leading the effort to put a much more powerful asteroid hunter in space. What started as NEOCAM is now NEOSurveyor, and its approval by the space agency in June was a triumph for Amy, her mission team, and all of us who know how vital it will be for planetary defense. Amy joined me remotely a few days ago. Amy Meinzer, thank you so much for returning to Planetary Radio. Double congratulations are in order here. There was that July 1st NEOWISE extension announcement, two-year extension by NASA. Really, wasn't it an even bigger announcement three weeks earlier and kind of a, a wonderful vindication of work that you have been leading for many years? Yeah, thank you so much, Matt. Uh, We're just really delighted to have been able to advance to the next phase of our mission development, um, which we call Phase B, or the Preliminary Design Phase. Uh, It's a big deal for us because basically it means it's uh, we're out of the formulation phase and now we're into really getting into the serious parts of the design and fabrication. The road to this spacecraft, to this mission, Neo Surveyor, was, uh, I don't have to tell you, long and hard. At least it looked that way from the outside. I'm also thinking of uh, the work that my colleague Casey Dreyer has done, and Casey says hello, by the way. Terrific job of documenting how support for near-Earth object research and planetary defense has skyrocketed in the last few years, which also seems to be a vindication of what so many of us, including NASA's own Planetary Defense Coordination Office, have have worked toward. You have to be glad to see all of this. Yeah, I mean, you know, the way I look at it is is that we, as, an, as a science community, need to do what we can to take care of the problems that fall within our domain. And this is an area that, you know, it's one of the things that we need to kind of cross off our list of worries. And the best way to do that, in my opinion, is just go look for the asteroids and do a pretty thorough job of it. Uh, and if we do that, we can pretty much retire the risk that there's something out there that we don't know about. So I think it's really good that uh, that this is getting the necessary attention. The amount of resources required are, are reasonable. You don't have to move a mountain in order to go find the mountains in space, but you hmm. do have to go do your homework. There are lots of places to go to read about the mission. We have a terrific Neo Surveyor page at planetary.org, and there is a great uh, site hosted by the University of Arizona about the mission. But uh, please, share your elevator speech about NeoSurveyor, what it's designed to do, how it will accomplish this uh, for, you know, the few people in this audience who may not know much about it. Sure. Well, uh, the main thing to know is that the solar system is a really busy place. There are lots of uh, asteroids kind of swarming into the inner solar system, ranging in size from teeny little specks of harmless dust all the way up to mountains. 
the good news is that there are far fewer of the mountain-sized objects than there are of the really small ones. That's because uh, over time, the asteroids have collided and produced a lot of little pieces. But even these little pieces, you know, if they're larger than about, say, 50 meters across, give or take, they can create some damage on the ground. So our goal is to go out and try to find the majority of objects that are big enough, say, bigger than about a football field size, roughly, to cause really severe regional damage. So in other words, damage to a very large region. The NEO surveyor mission really is optimized for finding these objects when they are well away from the Earth, long before any potential encounters could take place. And that will allow us to find the objects, get good orbits for them, make reliable predictions of where they're going to go, and make out some basic information about their physical properties. How big are they? And maybe how reflective are their surfaces, if we can get some, uh, some additional data on them. So that, in a nutshell, is what the mission is designed to do, is to do a very comprehensive survey of what's in our near solar neighborhood. I think it's a terrific sign of the progress that has been made, but we have some idea of how many of these larger rocks are out there. I mean, I, I see the figure 25,000, but that's pretty significant, isn't it? I mean, we, we spent most of our time, human civilization, not even realizing that there were rocks up there in the sky that could fall on us. And, and now we know roughly how many we need to worry about. Yeah, that's true. And so the 25,000 number comes from estimates based on the objects that we have discovered to date. Like I mentioned, there's a lot more of the smaller objects than there are of the truly, truly large ones, which is a good thing. We think that there's roughly about a thousand or so, give or take, of objects that are large enough to cause what we would call global extinction events, things that Mm. can take out entire species just in one fell swoop. And when you get down to the size of things that can cause sort of the regional level disasters, say, you know, the size of Southern California, for example, that's about the football field sized objects. And we think there's roughly 25,000 of those. For things that are big enough to have problems for an individual city, many more. Mm. Uh, the numbers just go up in, in large numbers from there because there are a lot, of, a lot more small pieces. But that said, we have learned an awful lot about what's out there just from the surveys that we've done to date. And that's given us a pretty good idea of kind of where we need to be aiming for in terms of characterizing and finding the rest of the population of interest. I do not remember how big the uh, rock that exploded over Chelyabinsk was, which, you know, fortunately blew up in the air, but still demonstrated the damage that these can do. Yeah, that was a really pretty small object. It's uh, estimated to have been somewhere between 17 to 20 meters across. Mm. And that's that's not very big at all. It's just the, the defining characteristic of these objects is that they move with just incredible speed with respect to the Earth. They're really going very fast, typically sort of maybe a few tens of thousands of miles per hour. That's where they get such a punch from. They just move really fast. And even a very small one can cause a, a good bit of damage if it makes it to the ground. Now, the good news is, On the small side, like this object that exploded over Chelyabinsk, the atmosphere does a really good job of screening out the majority of the the energy from the impact. And in the case of Chelyabinsk, it really did explode many miles above the surface of the Earth, and not that much of the energy actually made it to the ground. So there wasn't a big crater. But if the object is even a little bit larger than that, say 50 meters across, now instead of getting this sort of an airburst effect, now you can get a big crater in the ground. And we have a pretty spectacular example of that in Arizona that's uh, you know known as Meteor Crater. Which I highly recommend visiting. If, if, if you're not impressed by the power of these uh, space rocks uh, uh, before your visit, you will be after you uh, look over the edge of that crater. I was surprised to see that uh, the NEO surveyor 
telescope, the optics, really aren't that much bigger than what we already have in Neowise. Is this evidence of of the improvements in the detectors, as, as you sort of hinted at? Yes, that's an important point. So one of the neat things about looking for these objects at infrared wavelengths is you don't really need a very large mirror if you go into space and you can get the telescope nice and cold. Uh, in this case, the mirror for the surveyor mission is only a little bit bigger than that of the primary mirror for NEO-WISE, which is our existing space telescope that we have uh, that's doing its best, but you know is uh, not going to last a whole lot longer and also really isn't optimized for the task. The reason that surveyor is so much more sensitive is um, despite the fact that the mirror is only a little bit bigger, it really does have a much larger focal plane, meaning the the camera chips. We just have a lot more of them. They're more sensitive. Uh, and it lets us cover more of the sky. Also, the other thing we're going to be doing a little differently is we'll be able to look over a much wider zone on the sky, and we can integrate for longer times. In other words, we can stare for longer periods of time than Neowise can. So these factors all combined make for a telescope that's altogether more sensitive to these asteroids than the existing one that we have is. And also, too, it'll hopefully be able to operate for a nice long time, so that means we'll have plenty of time to go out and look. Turning the page here a little bit, what is it with the, the University of Arizona and the search for near-Earth objects, Catalina Sky Survey, Space Watch, you arrived a couple of years ago, which I think was kind of a coup for the campus, and now the university is a full partner in Neo Surveyor, the, uh, the mission you lead. This seems to be a real priority around there. Yeah, well, this is one of the great things about U of A is uh, just the long tradition of doing this kind of work with asteroids. Of course, Arizona is known for its very clear, dark skies, and they are beautiful. If you haven't been to visit and do some stargazing, I highly recommend it. It really is gorgeous out in Arizona. The The thing about the campus is that the science uh, really is well aligned with work the university is already doing. You, you mentioned Catalina. About half of all the near-Earth objects that we know of to date are discovered or have been discovered by the Catalina Sky Survey, which is operated in the mountains uh, just outside of Tucson. And of course, Space Watch was one of the pioneering telescopes in surveying for near-Earth objects, doing actually a dedicated survey for these things, not just so much discovering them serendipitously, serendipitously while doing other work. And of course, uh, the OSIRIS-REx mission's been ongoing for a long time uh, at U of A, and they're bringing back a sample of a particular asteroid, the asteroid Bennu. So we're looking forward to that. For all of these reasons, I think it, it really made U of A, a a really great place to go for this for this project. And uh, also, too, I'm just enjoying you know working with students and um, just being part of university life again. It's it's a lot of fun. I miss it. I spent 30 years in uh, on a university campus, and uh, I, I don't regret leaving for the Planetary Society, but I sure miss that atmosphere and, and being with all of those uh, lively young people. <laughs> and we love to follow OSIRIS-REx, by the way. You're going to launch, you hope, in 2026 and start looking for these. Uh, where would you hope we will be maybe 10 years later? Well, my fondest hope for the observatory is that we find a whole bunch of asteroids and comets and we find out that none of them are going to get close to us anytime soon. That Amen. would be the very best result. I will be very happy if that's the result, actually. <laughs> Before we wrap up here, give us a status report on NeoWise, uh, which is um, kind of a senior citizen up there. 
<laughs> it really is. I have to say, I am I am surprised beyond all measure at how long this telescope has lasted. Uh, it really was only supposed to last for six months plus a one orbit in our in orbit checkout phase, and that was uh, well, that was in 2010 that that all happened. <laughs> so <laughs> it's been a really long time since the spacecraft has launched, and and we, we've been very very fortunate that it's lasted as long as it has. It really was not supposed to. The sun has had a lot to do with that, surprisingly. It turns out that solar activity has a significant impact on how much drag forces uh, the atmosphere in the, in the upper layers, uh, right around 500 kilometers, how much force that can exert on a spacecraft like Neowise. In this case, the sun's been really quiet the last few years, and that has meant that there's been decreased drag force on this telescope, uh, which meant, has meant that the orbit has not decayed as fast as we thought it would initially. So that's the good news. It's really taught us a lot about the near-Earth asteroids, just in terms of their numbers, uh, the reflection or the ratio of bright to dark objects. In other words, uh, how many of these dark objects are out there in the population? It's taught us about that. And of course, it's done a pretty good job of helping to fill in the knowledge that we have of the objects that are darker and therefore more difficult to detect if you're looking for them with a reflected light telescope. Uh, so it's it's really been the little spacecraft that could, and uh, we hope we can get a little more time out of it. Uh, we have just been granted a two-year mission extension, which is just yeah. really wonderful. And uh, we hope that the sun stays nice and quiet. Hopefully it will. <laughs> <laughs> but that's hard to predict. Great statement of confidence. And we have that same hope, by the way, because uh, our light sail, which is uh, just a, about the same kind of orbit or height anyway uh, above the Earth that uh, Neowise is, has also benefited from that relatively quiet sun. Amy, I got just one other thing to ask you about, and it's a, really a story that I told you a few days ago, but I will repeat for the audience. Uh, since it's not just doing science that, that, that you do, but you like to talk about it, my five-year-old grandson, delightful little Rowan, uh, was watching a show on the iPad the other day, and I heard a familiar voice. And I go over, and of course, it was Ready, Jet, Go. There was you talking about science. And my, my grandson looks up to me, because he knows that Baba loves space, and says, Baba, this star is a red dwarf. <laughs> hey, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> you are doing good work. Uh, talk about this. I mean, ready, jet, go, but also just the importance of of sharing, you know, what the boss likes to call the the passion, beauty, and joy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it's been really a, a an absolute blast to work on Ready, Jet, Go. And, and that's just been a ton of fun, not the least of which because the team who, who wrote the show, the people who produced it really, really care about teaching kids science. I think the most important thing is, you know, you just summed it up. Science is about learning about nature and having fun learning about nature. It's its just, it's how we understand and interpret the world around us. Uh, it really, really is fascinating. And you could just never get bored. There's always something to learn. One of the things I love about working with kids is that they are just naturally in touch with that kind of curiosity and that, and that mm. just happiness that comes from figuring out how something works. You want them to never lose it. And you are so good at this, uh, not just for little kids, but big ones like me, and I suspect a lot of our audience out there. Uh, Amy, it always makes it a great pleasure to talk with you, and I'll just congratulate you again on this two-year extension for Neowise, and perhaps not very far away from having this much more powerful instrument up there trying to do that's uh, that other thing that the boss likes to say, all we're trying to do is save the world. Thank you, Amy. 
Thank you so much. And thanks to the Planetary Society for all of your support over the years. Uh, It's just really been wonderful. And we are very, very fortunate to get to do this work. NEO Surveyor Mission Lead, Amy Meinzer. What you've just heard is less than half of our outstanding conversation. You can hear the rest on this week's episode page at planetary.org slash radio or elsewhere online. We've even got a nice bit of raison d'etre from Jeff Bezos of Blue Origin and his online merchandise sales company you may have heard of. I'll be back with Bruce in a minute. This is Planetary Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Davis, Editorial Director for the Planetary Society. Did you know there are more than 20 planetary science missions exploring our solar system? That means a lot of news happens in any given week. Here's how to keep up with it all. The downlink is our new roundup of planetary exploration headlines. It connects you to the details when you want to dive deeper. From Mercury to interstellar space, we'll catch you up on what you might have missed. That's the downlink every Friday at planetary.org. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here again is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. That is Bruce Betts. Do you remember that funny random space fact that you provided us? Uh, JWST could detect bumblebees thermal signatures on the moon? Uh, Yes, it was a couple weeks ago. I assume you have a follow-on. Well, I don't. Daniel Kazard in the UK does. Daniel is the guy who sends us these funny little pastiches, these cartoons every week. He has done this great drawing. Uh, The caption is, note in space, no one can hear you poot. And one bumblebee is saying to another who looks like he's got a little rocket of gas coming out of his rear end, where else? He says, don't use your thruster. They can detect our heat signals now. (laughs) (laughs) way to keep it classy (laughs) i know can i still check the box that says this is a clean episode i think so i think i think that's pg uh tell us about the night sky all righty uh low ish in the western sky in the early evening you'll find super bright venus jupiter and saturn coming up in the east in the early mid-evening August 2nd, Saturn will be at opposition on the opposite side of the Earth from the sun. So by then, it'll be rising around sunset and setting around sunrise. Jupiter's the bright guy, and Saturn is the yellowish one to its upper right, if you look at them in the evening. Oh, and one more thing. On July 24th, the moon will be joining them and be in between Jupiter and Saturn, making for a lovely triumvirate. I don't know if those words have ever been combined before. Let's quickly move on to this week in space history. It was 1969, Apollo 11 returned from the moon with those humans aboard. In 1984, Svetlana Savitskaya became the first woman to walk in space. And in 2019, the Planetary Society's LightSail 2 spacecraft successfully deployed its solar sail. And where were you for that deployment? Actually, where were you and I and several other lucky people? 
<laughs> in space. Oh, no, just in my mind, I was in space, <laughs> uh, which is the safest way to fly. Uh, we were in San Luis Obispo, California at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, uh, where our communications is coordinated out of with the spacecraft. We were all there being excited and tense. And uh, you can find a nice video on our YouTube channel of that experience. Yeah, we covered it on uh, Planetary Radio about two years ago as well. It was it was so exciting to be up there, just as it was for the launch. And LightSail is going to come up again later in the show. Ooh, I'm so excited. On to random space bag. Cue the maniacal laughter. <laughs> Viking Lander oh, sorry. Viking Lander 1 was originally scheduled to land on Mars on July 4th, 1976, the bicentennial of the United States. But when they got there, pictures showed the landing area looked too rough. So they delayed the landing to July 20th at a different location, July 20th, putting it on the seventh anniversary of humans first walking on the moon. As you were saying last week, July 20th has become a, a real red-letter day in, uh, in space history. It has indeed. We have uh, a good contest to go on to here. Uh, get us started. The James Webb Space Telescope that we heard about a couple episodes ago will be stationed at the Earth-Sun Lagrange Point 2, or L2. My question to you was, what was the first spacecraft stationed at Earth-Sun L2? How'd we do? We got a very consistent, correct answers from almost everybody who entered this week, and we had a pretty good crowd, too. I will allow our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas, to answer your question. WMAP was a NASA explorer that launched back in 2001. It flew on a Delta, then went to Lagrangian point number two for its run. It showed Stephen Hawking the proof of inflation. He said, this expands the frontier. I'd say it's exciting. The best I've seen yet found in physics throughout my career. WMAP, right? <laughs> WMAP, the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, taught us all sorts of stuff about the origins of the universe and the timing of it and, and the like. And they were the first to hang out at Earth's Sun L2, which, as a reminder, is on the anti-sun side of the Earth from the sun and is a relatively stable gravitational point. So you don't have to use a lot of fuel to hang out there and you get away from all the interference of the earth and the moon. And this is doubly relevant since we were just talking to uh, Amy Meinzer about hanging out at L1, the uh, Sun-Earth uh, Lagrangian point one. So that puts you towards the sun and L2 pu puts you away from the sun. Here's our winner. It has been since October 19, 2019, that is, uh, when he had his first win, Chip Kaplov in California, who said, yeah, WMAP launched June 30th, 2001, uh, reached L2, what, about three months later? And uh, he says, look forward to your show every week. Thanks for all you do to bring us the magic of the solar system and beyond. Uh, congratulations, Chip. You have won yourself a gorgeous planetary radio t-shirt, which we will be um, offering uh, once again in, in just moments on our new contest. Name all the people who have flown longer than one year, so longer than 365 days, uh, who have flown longer than one year in space on, on single missions, so that 
the people who've uh-huh. spent more than a year in space at one time, go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Sorry, Captain Scott Kelly. That's a, I'm giving you a little gimme there for some of you out there, but a great book and endurance that he has written about his uh, almost long enough time up there. You have until the 28th, that'd be July 28th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer for this one. And like I said, win yourself a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Okay, everybody, let's go out there, look up in the night sky and think about mingling with fish in space. Thank you and good night. Uh, Okay, bumblebees first, now fish. Why, are there fish on the ISS? I can neither confirm nor deny. (laughs) Okay, somebody alert Kilgore Trout, please. Uh, That's Bruce Betts. He's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who are all defenders of Earth. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astro. Ad Astro.